you can't improve something you don't measure. Currently, only 25% of global emissions are tracked and managed. And as a reminder, we have to reduce our emissions by half by 2030. So it's a very, very difficult objective to achieve, but it's even more difficult if you're only tracking a quarter of global emissions. Every company that has financial accounting will end up having carbon accounting. Anyone in this business has the potential to become big, like SAP is big, or Intuit, or Xero, all these accounting firms. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions, not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today in Scaling Climate Tech, we welcome Alexi Normal, co-founder and CEO of Greenly. Greenly's mission is to enable every company, from a one-person business to a large multinational company, to precisely measure the carbon emissions to start getting on the path to net zero. By automating the carbon accounting process and bringing down its cost, it is making it easier and more accessible for all companies to measure their emissions. Launched less than four years ago, Greenly has already convinced 1,000 customers across Europe and the US. With $22 million of fresh funding raised last year from great investors like Energy Impact Partner, Greenly is ready to democratize carbon accounting and to enable climate action for companies of all sizes. Let's get started. Hello, Lexi. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. It's great to have you here. I'm really happy about this discussion for a lot of reasons, right? First of all, you're from France originally, and, and you have a French company that now operates uh, globally in the US. But it's the first time we have a, a French founder on the show. And as some of you might have noticed, I'm also French originally. So it's great to be able to showcase the, the European tech scene and uh, the French climate tech scene, which I think has come a, a long way those last years. I'm also very glad because we're going to talk about what's an enabling technology in climate. So we've talked a lot about technologies that directly reduce emissions. Uh, we've talked about, uh, you know, heat pumps with KFE from the Nelline Energy. We've talked about carbon capture with Remora and Paul Gross. But we haven't talked so much about the enabling environments and everything you need for those technologies to be adopted and for companies to take actions. So I'd like to talk about a lot of topics today on your journey and on, on carbon accounting and management, which is what Greenly does. First of all, I'd like to talk about this term of carbon accounting, which might sound boring, but is really important for companies to measure what they emit. I would like to break down as well some complicated climate terms on climate action that companies are taking, carbon neutrality, what does that mean, being net zero or having science-based targets, and we'll see that you know these are not the same things. And of course, I'd like to understand the business of Greenly. What is driving customer adoption? Why do companies care about carbon accounting and management? Also very interested to have your view on Europe versus the US. How mature is that, that market across the different geographies? And you know, as we like to talk about in the show, how does this scale globally to become like a tool like any financial accounting tool? So a lot of topics, but before delving into that, Alexi, could I ask you to introduce yourself, please? 
Sure. So my name is Alexis Norman. I'm 40. I'm an entrepreneur. I started Greenly three and a half years ago with the idea that everybody, I mean, literally everybody needed to track his carbon, that in the future, in the net zero world, you know, something everybody would know. For me, this idea of tracking carbon comes from my previous job, actually working in the U.S., where I was leading the Boston office of a company called Widings, which tracks your health, your steps, your weight, your blood pressure. And I thought previously, like health metrics were invisible. And when you start to track them, well, essentially, you start to change your behavior and hopefully in the right way. And it struck me that this thing needed to be applicable to a lot of other areas. And of course, an essential one being the environment. And so I, I guess I went from this to that. And part of my entrepreneurial journey happened in the US, actually, when Withings was acquired by Nokia. And, you know, when you've had the thrill of uh, uh, being in a startup and you're acquired by a big group, you start to appreciate the earlier days. And so that's how it all started. That's very interesting from the withings and the tracking perspective. How did you transition from, you know, that technology mindset of measurement is the first step to take action to being healthier or fitter or whatever, you know, health objective you might have to applying that to climate? And I'm asking also because this is in 2018, 19. So the talk around climate wasn't as strong as it is today. So was it a personal interest of yours? on climate and you made a parallel with your, your professional journey, or how did you get into that climate uh, ecosystem? Sure. So I was struck in the US by how little interest people had for this topic, but at the same time, how amazing the wildlife is. So when I was in Boston, I would uh, go a lot to a place called Walden Pond, which is where um, a American philosopher, you know, Henry David Thoreau wrote Walden and kind of invented American environmentalism. So I, I guess I was in the right place. And it struck me that so little attention was being paid to this. And being of a French background, it's kind of a national obsession. So this contrast struck me as, you know, something where there was, I guess, you know, a problem, but also an opportunity. Now, I did have a lot more free time after I left Withings or Nokia. And really, so I guess I was inspired by this contrast and I wanted to, to be at the start of something. And so my initial impulse was say, okay, let's build the, the withings of carbon footprint or the Fitbits of carbon footprint, if you prefer, which really is about tracking your own carbon footprint as an individual. So we created an app that essentially you know, syncs to your bank account. If you're familiar with Mint, for instance, uh, that gives you a credit score, well, it's the same technology. We'd sync up with your credit cards and your bank account, and we'd analyze your every expense, and we'd categorize it, and then we'd say, okay, here you're buying fuel, or you're buying electricity, or you're buying food, or and we'd convert that into carbon, and we'd do it automatically. And so that's how we started. So it was more like a, almost a quantified self-play before we actually stumbled on carbon accounting. So we, we launched a basically, yeah, a quantified self-app for your own carbon footprint. And then with the logic of, you know, how do I switch to a more sustainable consumption or how do I offset my emissions and so on and so forth. 
And I mean, we had some success. The, the app must have been downloaded by about uh, 100,000 people. But we, we also saw that the willingness to pay for this kind of stuff was not necessarily there. And that uh, we'd have actually a lot more impact if we, we pivoted this to other players being essentially companies. So this initial idea of tracking spending to track carbon, we, we said, what if we applied it to you know, financial accounting uh, from companies? And so that's how it started on the carbon accounting platform for SMBs. Got it. And let me just pause you on that, on the personal accounting piece. When you launched that and, and when you left Nokia and Withings to launch that, was this just a hunch that, you know, it makes sense to have, as you say, a Fitbit for carbon and this should be something that exists? Or did you have a better perspective on the traction that there's a business model? I'm just trying to understand how mature was the idea when you actually decided to launch it at that time? Well, I had been thinking about this for a long time, being like in the quantified self for at least five years. So there are a lot of other things that I wanted to track, but it struck me as something feasible once I understood that there were open banking APIs and that tapping into expenses in continuous, in real time would make it feasible to have like constant feedback loops. Previously, I thought, okay, well, maybe you have to do it with like your the GPS of your telephone, but then it's only your transport and we're forgetting, you know, all your food and travel and other stuff. So I think it was more like starting with the technical possibilities. Okay, well, if we do this and we create the right UX and so on, people will come and we'll figure out the business. I think we hadn't, and maybe it'll be like, okay, let's get some cash back on sustainable spending, or maybe it'll be like on the offsets, or actually what it ended up being is we, we built an API for this that we sold to a bank and then another and now about 10 banks. So if you're using WISE or BNPP or a number of other banks, you can actually have a, an estimation of your carbon footprint powered by our API. So we, we ended up actually finding a business, but frankly, we had no idea when we started that this would be the business. And we actually had no idea that we'd pivot after six to eight months to B2B. Right. But you, you build a technological block from that experience. And so how did you make that pivot to B2B? Because as you say, you learn from the industry. And I think that anyway, that the carbon accounting and management space is, is very new from a corporate perspective. So what was your first introduction to that problem when, where you understood that, you know, the technology we're building for the personal footprinting directly applies with a few twists to the corporate space? Well, you know, of course, when you start on a new topic, which is a really interesting one, you start to read everything about it and you become passionate and so on and so forth. So we obviously saw that, you know, there were some existing regulations applying to corporations, mostly in Europe, that if you have at least 500 employees, you have an obligation to track your footprint on your direct emissions and those that are linked to your electricity consumption, scope one and two. And so, okay, it's a big company thing we saw. Uh, so we're not ready yet to do this at the time. But then there were like all these debates. And especially in France, there was this big crisis at one point where we had a lot of people called the Gilets Jaunes. You might know about them, but to a US audience, it's basically people complaining very violently about the rising price of you know, gasoline and stuff like that. And so very angry people. And there was this whole debate is like, 
okay, we're, we're trying to tax fuel, but at the same time, we have people that are extremely mad about this. And so we have, and so there was this whole debate about ways to adapt the country to like climate change. And it was very visible in the media. And people were like, they randomly picked 150 citizens who had to come up with like ideas and for regulations or whatever to address climate change. So this was like in the summer of 2020. And one of the topics they discussed was like, okay, well, every company needs to do their carbon accounting. And of course, you know, I paid a lot of interest to what they were saying, but it struck me that this was really going to happen, that everybody was going to do it. Every company, not just the big ones, but even this was like the sense of history. But at the same time, I was, of course, very aware of the fact that the market for carbon accounting was kind of trusted by like very prestigious consultancies who like had invented the methodology and were very well regarded in the media and so on. And, you know, it felt to me like this was a typical case for something that needed to be disrupted. So I have a lot of respects for consultants, but usually they're very good at handling something which is non-generic. And when you have something that you feel can be industrialized, basically, it's always going to be the same for everybody. At least that's what it seemed to us when we started out. Well, then, you know, you can basically build a software that's going to reduce the friction, the cost, the time to execution, but also is going to target players that were currently excluded out of this market. So, you know, the consultancies would focus on the large companies that have the money to pay for very brilliant people. But the smaller companies, they might want to be doing something, but basically they don't have the money, so they'll only go for something if it's much cheaper, uh, if it asks much less effort of them. And maybe because we were just starting off, they're okay with something that's not quite as qualitative, at least, you know, in the first iteration of what we did. So we said, okay, let's basically go for it. If this is going to be as pervasive as financial accounting, it needs to be as cheap as financial accounting. So it's like, let's build the QuickBooks for carbon accounting. And so listening to these debates, that, and then we, we actually found a guy who had been an intern in one of those big consultancies, and we hired him to like translate the slides into a SaaS with us. Into a product. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this very often in the industry, right? The consultancy, as you say, is, is high price and personalized tailored products, which is great for some applications. But a product and a software product is about automation and bringing down the cost and making this accessible to as many people as possible that might not need this, you know, premium customized version. And so for everyone to understand what carbon accounting is, I think this is a good time to actually go into the weeds of what that means. You know, maybe we can take a simple example of, let's say, you know, a small business that that produces tables or some form of furniture. For this small business, how do you measure those emissions specifically? And, and we mentioned this in the intro. I'd be interested to understand the difference between what we call spend-based accounting and activity-based accounting. And, you know, beyond the methodological difference, why does that actually matter when you, you measure emissions to be accurate for a company? So before we talk about how you track carbon, just in two words, why? I mean, essentially, it's super simple. And I was talking about quantified self. You can't improve something you don't measure. 
And just a quick statistic here, currently only 25% of global emissions are tracked and managed. And as a reminder, if we want to avoid the world from heating by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, so something like 2.5 Fahrenheit, by 2050, we, we have to reduce our emissions by half by 2030. So it's a very, very difficult objective to achieve, but it's even more difficult if you're only tracking a quarter of global emissions. So you need to scale carbon accounting massively. Now, how do you do that and what do you measure? So it's an area which is pretty standardized, kind of like financial accounting. You know, you have specific accounts and categories that you need to report on. So there are typically three categories that everyone should know about. They're called scopes, scope one, scope two, scope three. Scope one is what we call your direct emissions. So if you are a company and you, know, you own a building, you own machines, you own maybe a factory, you own cars. So all these machines that you own, maybe you're putting fuel into them. Maybe you're heating your building. Maybe you're burning stuff to get your production line running. And all the, maybe you have air conditioning in your building. So you're putting refrigerating gas in your machines and they're leaking. So all the stuff that is coming out basically goes into the air and it could be CO2 or other equivalents. And so they have an effect on global warming and you can measure that. And that's your scope one. It's the emissions of the machines you own. And they're relatively easy to track, to be honest, because most people know how much fuel they're consuming, how much gas they're consuming, or how much AC they're using. Now, you have a second category, which is called your scope two, which is another word for measuring the emissions linked to your consumption of utilities. So you have to imagine a chimney with your gas power plant or your coal power plant or your nuclear power plant. And... There's stuff coming out of there. It's not in your facilities per se, but you can directly tie those emissions to how much electricity or gas you're using, right? And that's pretty straightforward to compute. So direct and indirect emissions linked to electricity, that's your scope one and two. And then there is a third part, which is basically everything else, but it does matter. So what is everything else? So if you're a business, well, you're buying stuff, right? To go into your production line, Maybe you're a retailer, so you're buying shoes and then you're really selling them. People are commuting to work. Maybe people are using like airplanes to go to offsites and so on. So you have transportation, you're shipping goods in, you're shipping goods out. Maybe you're a bank and you're financing stuff and that has an impact. So it's all the emissions linked to your value chain. And so people are saying, yeah, well, I'm not responsible for that. I think it's a fair objection, but it's not so much a question of responsibility. It's more of a question of how dependent are you on fossil fuels to make your business work? So let's look at your value chain. If you're like selling stuff that emits a lot of CO2 and just being in business means you have to do that, then you're totally dependent on CO2 emissions. And so you could look at a retailer like Amazon. It has a huge scope three. It's like 99% of its emissions. Or you could look at a tech company. They would have a huge scope three around like their consumption of data centers. Or you could be a consultancy and then your scope three is like your business travels and your hotels and stuff like that, et cetera, et cetera. And so to your original question, how do I compute all of this? 
So the basic principle is fairly straightforward, is you take all those categories, your direct sources of emission, indirect value chain, and essentially what you want to do is quantify this. So you, how much fuel am I buying and consuming? How much electricity am I buying and consuming? And what am I buying? You know, what are my raw materials? What, how much transportation am I doing? And so on and so forth. They're like those standardized categories. You quantify your activities and then you convert those activities into CO2 equivalent. We say CO2 equivalent because there are a number of greenhouse gases, but just to make it simple, we normalize everything along what it would represent in terms of CO2. But so to go from an activity, quantified activity to CO2, you have to use a conversion ratio, which we call an emission factor. So super simple example is I'm burning a gallon of fuel. Well, you know, it's a physical quantity. You know that a gallon of fuel is, I'm not exactly sure it's that, but around three kilograms of CO2. So if you're burning 100 gallons of fuel, it's 300 kilograms of CO2. We count in kilograms in carbon accounting. If you're consuming electricity, so your electricity is converted into CO2, and that's pretty straightforward. The emission factor is essentially a function of the energy mix of where you're consuming that electricity. So if you're plugged to basically a coal power, it's super emissive. It could be like something like 600 grams of CO2 for one kilowatt hour. But if you're plugged into a solar panel, maybe it's only 15 grams of CO2. And there's still emissions linked to solar panels because you had to build the panel, you know. But in, in most cases, it's not just coal or solar, it's the mix. And that changes every hour. Uh, so you can uh, link your electricity consumption to grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour APIs. And then you have like very complex computation. And then for your scope three, of course, it's a much bigger category. So you could, like for every table or every napkin or every telephone uh, that you buy, have like, okay, what's the emission factor of this phone or this table in units? And if you present it like this, it looks like a big headache because there's so much stuff that you buy that actually collecting that data is going to be really tough. But the thing is, that's where you can have, like, you can start from the top, basically, and you can figure out pretty quickly what the big categories are through what we call a spend-based approach. So I'm not immediately going to count how many Nespresso capsules my business has consumed this year and how many coffees my uh, colleagues have had. I'm going to look at how much I spent on this versus how much I spent on buying aluminum and computers or whatever. And so I take a spend-based approach. So I convert how much money I spent on those big supply chain categories into CO2 by having emission factors that essentially convert dollars into CO2. And now, of course, you know, if I'm using this approach, it's not as accurate as if I were actually counting how many Nespresso capsules I've drunk, but that's okay because I'm only going to be more granular and what I call activity-based for the big categories where I can have a real leverage in terms of reducing my emission. So it's a top-down approach. I really uh, like this explanation of, you know, spend-based, activity-based, and you shouldn't put all your effort on activity-based everywhere. Because as you say, right, 80% or 90% emissions 
are only a few select categories that, that vary depending on your business. And that's where it matters to really put the effort and being precise because the 10, 20% error on the 0.1% of emission doesn't matter that much. Exactly. And you don't want to exhaust your customers. You want them to have real impact. So you have to preserve their energy for the stuff that really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to imagine that we took a very simple example, right? A small business with a wooden table. But if you're uh, IKEA, right, you have all the possible furniture, all the possible tables with all the different materials. And also, those tables are not typically made by IKEA. They will typically be made by suppliers of IKEA. And the tables themselves might be made by several suppliers where some of them are doing you know, one piece of the, the table and another piece and, and the final supplier is assembling it and selling it to IKEA. Can you walk us a bit through that chain of information and, and how do you get, as you say, scope one and two is in there's some computation, but it's your own data, it's your own electricity, your own machine, so you can compute that. How do you get data from suppliers all the way down the value chain to be able to be as precise as possible? So, of course, when you start from the top on spend-based approach, it's, it's not super precise. And if you want to have lasting impact, you want to get down to a point where you can choose a supplier over another or one product over another. So you want much more granular information. So I think the, the IKEA example is perfect because it's a retailer, they manufacture a lot of things. So if I were to do their carbon accounting, you know, I think I'd go directly to activity based on things like electricity or fuel consumption, because usually they're pretty good at this and they have like the information easily available from all their facilities. But when it comes down to the product, they of course have inventories of pretty much everything they buy and sell. And so you have product families and you can essentially put an emission factor in front of a table. And sometimes you have like generic emission factors for a big, a small, a large table. How do you know this? Well, there are some research institutions that have like made those emission factors available as standards. And so, you know, if they're selling 1 million table a year and on average a table is 100 kilograms, it's pretty easy math, right? But it doesn't tell you how IKEA is going to reduce the emissions of their table category. So you want to go one level deeper. And so what we do with a number of companies, and I actually believe that IKEA is doing that, if we stay on that example, is you want to figure out what the exact emission factor is for each table. And when you're selling furniture to IKEA, these are such large volumes that the suppliers have enough business to invest in that kind of analytics. And so then you have to conduct not a category level analysis of a product, but an actual product level analysis of this product's footprint. And it's something we call a life cycle assessment, LCA as an acronym. And basically an LCA consists usually of five or six steps. One is like, okay, what raw material have I used? Like what kind of wood? And you know, uh, you have emission factors per kilograms of wood. Okay, that's fair enough. But then there's the transportation of that raw material to the place of manufacturing. And then there's the manufacturing or assembly process. So that's step one is raw material. Step two is transport. Step three is like assembly slash manufacturing. And there's, there's, there's some energy involved because you're 
I, I suppose you're cutting it and you're powering the machine or something, and then you're packaging it. So and then you're you're shipping it again, and then the table lives its life. And at the end, you end up disposing of it, right? And maybe you burn it or maybe it rots. So if you burn the, the table, you know, that's something else. So you have like this life cycle. And for every uh, single step, there are some standards for computing this. And so you end up having the emission factor for each SKU, each reference of a product. So we tend to like start from the top and then drill down. But there are a number of retailers for which we are not just applying standard emission factors per SKUs, per references. We're actually helping them do life cycle assessments. And when it's something like very specific, you have to like start from scratch. But it's when it's something very generic, like a table or a shoe or something, you can use a base model. And then based on parameters like weight or other stuff or where it's sourced from, you can do mass life cycle analysis which is actually something we're doing for a retailer in Europe called Mano Mano, which is like the category leader for do-it-yourself and screwdrivers and stuff like that. And so we're massifying LCAs so that they themselves can actually show this information to end consumers. So now, you know, when I'm buying a fridge, I want to know if it consumes a lot or not. Well, I could actually be doing this for my screwdriver or my driller or whatever. That's super interesting because I think one of the challenges of LCA is, you know, the same as, as carbon accounting historically. It's a consultancy that would come in and, and analyze and it would take several weeks. And in your example of Mano Mano, you, I don't know how many SKUs they have, but probably thousands of them. So you, you can't do that at scale, right? So we're massifying it based on product variances on stuff like weight or where it comes from, uh, transportation and so on. So we, we apply... Uh, I would say like weighted factors to each steps of the value chain. And we, in our product, we integrate with product information management systems like Shopify. So we're able to pull in all the SKUs of a retailer and then do this matching between quantities and emission factors. And data is key in everything, right? The quality of the information you're getting is 100% based on the quality of that data and those activity. And these are, can be sensitive data because this is about suppliers, it's about how much you have an inventory, how much do you sell. How comfortable, is that a challenge for customers to actually agree to open their data sets to you? I imagine very specific roles on, on where the data flows to, but is that a challenge you're seeing? I mean, yes, you know, because when you're performing the carbon accounting of a company, you, you're basically like pulling in all the activity data of that company. So you have their financial information, you have the actual information of how their business is doing. So we have to show that we are, you know, safe partners to work with. So we, there's some reassurance around showing our, our SOC 2 certifications. Uh, we're not handling too much personal data, but we do survey employees. So we, we are, of course, GDPR compliant and so on and so forth. We are getting uh, financial information into our systems. But we don't need to know how much a company is doing. We essentially need to understand their spend. So yes, we're definitely getting a, a lot of uh, sensitive information. And we, we have to show that we're secure. We, uh, if you would go on our website, you'd see all the controls that are in place. But I think beyond like the boxes that we check in terms of security, what's interesting is carbon accounting. It means that very quickly the top management is involved. 
So something like ESG or or like what are we doing used to be um, maybe not such a central function to a lot of companies. But now what this means is that the CFO is very quickly involved and it's under his purview. And, and in many companies, it's under like his responsibility and he's held accountable for it. So I think I, the fact that we're handling sensitive data is, a, I think, a good sign of the importance of the topic is what I'm saying. So you mentioned CFO, so let, let's talk business model. I was on your website and, and there's a very transparent pricing there. So I played a bit with it. It starts at 99 per month. So that's for like the smallest company, uh, a single license. And as you grow in terms of, of complexity of the companies and number of employees and complexity of the industry as well, it can be several thousand dollars. This is a new cost for the company because historically they don't track their carbon. So there might not be an existing budget. How did you think of the pricing model for this product when you started Greenly. And I'm asking this because when it's a new budget, it's typically harder to get from a customer versus replacing an existing financial accounting system, for instance. So how do you think of the pricing for those companies when you started? So I, I think, you know, we're still thinking about it and I've never heard of anyone who figured it out in the first place. And so there's some work involved. I think the initial hunch was to say this needs to be as cheap as financial accounting for small businesses. So, you know, if QuickBooks charges 15 bucks a month for QuickBooks, for, but it's usually like for a single person owned business, we need to build the technology that allows us to do this at scale. So, of course, our, our base price is 99 a month or one. And it's really an annual commitment. So it's more like 1,200 or something a year, which really is really cheap. And we need to have a platform that's super, you know, scalable and intuitive to hold those kind of costs and yet with great support. So how we thought about this, you know, there are only two ways that you can price. One is what is the customer willing to pay? And the other is how much does it actually cost you to perform the service, right? So I think we thought of the customer first. If, what does it take to disrupt this market? How can you get smaller companies involved? And you know, at what budget would they go for it? Okay, and, and this is what they're wanting to pay, a thousand bucks a year, basically. They also have expectations that there's not gonna be like a consultant full-time with them for, for 10 weeks or something, but they still expect a good service. So let's bid something super intuitive where you learn from the product what carbon accounting is. You're guided through the platform. And yes, you can always speak to a climate expert through support. And there's going to be a session where you ask all your questions and you understand your results and you can report back. But of course, as we, we grew, we started having bigger companies. Companies very often that have a real obligation to do it. Not so much a legal one, but more of a business one. So you're saying, okay, this is a new budget. So if it's a new budget, small companies are like, okay, sure, why not? You know, it's a thousand dollars, I'll try it. But usually that's not the way it works. What happens is we have what we call our ICP, or ideal customer persona, is essentially somebody who has a very compelling need to do this in a very short timeline. And who is that? Well, it's essentially a person whose business will depend on his ability to demonstrate to a customer that he's tracking his emissions seriously. And there are more and more businesses in that case. So if you're working for a big company like IKEA, if we stay on that example, 
They're asking their suppliers to provide them with information so that they can do their own scope three assessment. If you're working for Walmart, they're engaging their suppliers. If you're now working with the U.S. Army and you have a contract above $50 million a year, you have to show that you're tracking your carbon footprint uh, or else you just aren't able to renew your contract. But these are much bigger companies. And so they also have more complexity. They have you know, bigger facilities. They have more facilities. They expect more services. And so we're pricing up basically according to the value that we deliver to these guys. And so I think as a company, we've moved from like developing a basic platform for very small companies to addressing the mid-market and now increasingly the enterprise with more and more complex products and services, which you know means you're, you're also getting to places where you can invoice deals for, for 30, 50K to these larger companies. They expect consultants. So what we're doing, and you know, we initially developed ourselves as a way to disrupt consultancies. So now we're in a more, um, I think, peaceful mindset where we realize that we're doing something consultants are not doing like automating a lot of the data collection and analytics and so on. But those bigger companies still expect, you know, a lot of support, custom slides. So we partner with consultants now on some of that stuff. So I guess we've evolved and we've priced up as the, the product got more mature and we added more services on our own or in partnership. Yeah. And I think it's what's fascinating about Greenly is that you're covering a really wide scope of the market, right? From, I was checking that the customer list, you have very small customer, which is the one you were aiming for, the small and medium business. And you also have BNP Paribas, which is a banking giant, right? And so the product offering has to fit that. And you were mentioning earlier that one of the key driver adoption is regulatory, so some mandates in Europe specifically. For those smaller companies, you know, 10 or a few hundred employees, is the main driver adoption what you were mentioning with Walmart and Ikea asking from the suppliers to disclose their emissions so that they can integrate it within their own carbon accounting? Or are you also seeing you know, some other drivers, I don't know, maybe some, some commitment from those small companies themselves to actually do uh, carbon accounting? Yeah, I think the main driver is the supply chain, for sure. So yeah, we have a lot of uh, enterprise logos. And how we got to enterprise actually is through the supply chain. So we had a lot of companies come to us and say, I'm a packaging company and I'm working with uh, Hennessy or, or some beverage company or something. And when you get like a 10 of those customers, you begin to wonder and say, okay, well, everybody's being pressured by basically a procurement department to do this. So let's go talk to these guys and let's apply our software with the spend-based approach and everything else to what they're doing and help them like baseline their supply chain. And then, so we didn't want to like do the carbon accounting of those huge companies right away, because even if we are technically capable of doing it, it's a different business. There's more like large account selling. It's much longer. We're not uh, experts yet in this, but if we go like to the SMBs within the large companies, so like the procurement departments or the um, IT departments, and we say, hey, we have all the tools, we can connect everything, we can automate the tracking. Well, you know what? We'll also help you engage your supply chain. And so they'll use us as a way to essentially ask for more info to the suppliers and, and we can actually help these guys out. So very strong 
network effects here. And that's how I think we moved up. And now, of course, we're able to help larger enterprises. But to your original question, I think the main driver of the demand is definitely supply chain. There are a few other categories. Another one are those pledges. So I want to be B Corp. I'm in finance and I maybe I subscribe to the data convergence project, or maybe I'm a bank and you know, part of the TCFD task force for climate disclosure. I mean, there are lots of those pledges. And I think what we're seeing more and more is perhaps the third category is like employees. So if I'm a millennial, you know, I don't really want to work for a, uh, an oil and gas company anymore. If I really started to read stuff about climate change and IPCC report, I'm thinking that the later years of my life are going to be much tougher and those of my kids are going to be much tougher. And, you know, I'm 40, so I didn't grow up with this uh, angst, but the employees in their 20s that we have uh, feel it much more strongly. And we, we see it with our customers. So like when we show their reports in the younger companies, it's like it becomes for the employees like a kind of a perk, you know, oh my God, they started doing this and they and you have like suddenly 20% of the company that wants to be involved in some sort of project to decarbonize the company. And the level of engagement is amazing. Last category, I think, of course, is your customers, not the B2B customers, but the B2C customers. Do they want to buy a yogurt or a t-shirt from somebody who doesn't care? I mean, a lot of people still do, of course, but it's becoming increasingly important and think of the the Patagonia and so on. So these guys are, are basing uh, their whole marketing on the fact that what they're doing is probably not that great, but at least better than average. And I think both on this employee engagement and customer engagement, at least several years ago, you were able to you know greenwash a bit and saying, hey, I'm doing all those amazing things and, and no one would really look into it. The, the difference now that people actually care and will, will dig deeper. So that's where the value of actually having the data and proving your action and, and employees will look into that nowadays. They will, but it's actually still pretty hard to find information. So uh, I think we've seen an evolution, and particularly, I think, in the U.S., you have a lot of claims, businesses saying they're carbon neutral. And most people think that's great, but if you, if you look a bit into it, the very idea of carbon neutrality doesn't really you know, stand because you're always emitting something. And, and the, if you are offsetting what you're emitting, but you know, you, you've only grabbed, you've just taken your part of the 0.1% of emissions that can be offset globally because of the scarce availability of this project, you haven't really solved anything. You just bought your, your slice of the quota. That is a ridiculous quota. And so this, it was great to say you were carbon neutral even probably last year. And now if you say this, you're actually putting your organization at a very big risk of being accused of greenwashing because what you have to say is, okay, no one is really carbon neutral, but yes, I understand this is a problem and I need to work my way towards net zero and net zero is carbon neutrality, not today, but in 2050. And it's not just wording. Sometimes words have their importance. And in this case, it does a lot because carbon neutrality kind of entertains the, the false idea that it's a quick fix, which unfortunately it is not. 
Absolutely. And thank you for the transition because we've talked about measurement and that's important, but I, I really want to discuss this, which is climate commitments and what do you do about the measure and how do you reduce your emissions? And you've talked about greenwashing. There's a law in Europe actually that's, that's being discussed to set rules around what you can say and not say about your, your climate actions. And I think what's very confusing is that there are a lot of labels. There are hundreds of labels around, around climate commitments from, from companies. And so I'd love to deep dive into really what they mean, not all of them for sure, but at least the one you mentioned, which is being carbon neutral versus being net zero and specifically having a science-based target. It's a bit technical, but I think it really matters. And all the more, you know, when you go to a supermarket, for instance, you see a lot in the packages now that this milk is carbon neutral. And I think from a consumer point of view, when you don't know those differences, it feels like the problem is solved fully and that it's an easy fix and it hides the complexity that stands behind. So maybe if you could just explain this, like the what carbon neutral and being net zero really mean and why the difference is actually pretty critical. So just as a reminder, you know, we're, we're emitting approximately 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent a year, right? And that just goes uh, in the atmosphere, half of it in the oceans. And so if you want it to be carbon neutral, you'd have to basically have projects or forests or whatever in excess, which would basically capture almost as much as that every year. And now there aren't such projects. In fact, uh, you tend to have less forests uh, year over year. And there are, and you know, all the stuff about direct air capture is great on paper, but in terms of reality, it's very small. It's like you're not capturing that much. So the world in general is not carbon neutral, very far from it. And even if we have to scale up all the offsetting projects, right, the most optimistic scenarios say that we'll one day be able to capture 10 billion tons of CO2 in 2050. So it leaves us with 40 billion ton more extra, right? So you can't completely offset your way out of the problem. And if you say you're carbon neutral today, well, what you've done essentially is you've purchased a piece of the 0.1% emissions that are captured by existing projects. Buying an offset is not bad in itself. What's bad is to think that you've solved the problem. So carbon neutrality is when the sum of emission equals the sum of offsets, right? Which net zero is the same thing. But net zero, we like... IPCC reports and other references on climate change will say, okay, we think it's doable to achieve net zero in 2050. So when we'll be at about five to 10 billion tons of CO2 emitted, and we'll be at a place where we can capture all of that. And that's net zero. So I think what we should be telling companies is to say, don't claim you're carbon neutral. Uh, you know, just say that you have a roadmap to align yourself with a net zero trajectory. So climate is a journey. No one thinks that we can fully solve the problem right now, but we do think it's feasible to reduce your emissions by five, 10, and maybe even 15% a year, and that's fine. So I think it's more honest to say, look, you know what? I'm disclosing my emissions, I'm measuring them. Here's where I am. I'm not saying I'm great, but at least I'm honest. And now that I've been honest, I've disclosed not just my scope one and my scope two, but also my scope three. So I've really disclosed, I haven't hidden 98% of my emissions. Like 
Amazon does, for instance. I mean, they're, they're doing a great job on their scope one and their scope two, but they're not even talking about the emissions of everything that is bought and sold. So it's like, let's just start by being honest. Let's measure all our emissions, because if we're not honest, it's really hard to set a roadmap for reducing every year. And let's stay on that Amazon example for a second. You know, being honest has a lot of virtues because then it means your reduction objective is not just like, okay, I'm going to have electric vehicles and better facilities. It's going to be, I'm going to use my power over my supply chain to reduce the 99% of my emissions. And I'm going to ask my suppliers, okay, well, I have this 10% reduction objective per year, uh, per year. So maybe you guys can help me out. And what's your objective? And maybe I'll tell my buyers. So I think it allows for a kind of trickle-down effect. And so, you know, I'm a big advocate of being a contributor to a net zero strategy. And there are standards on this. One of the most famous one is SPTI. It's called the Science-Based Target Initiative which is essentially a group that was formed with another NGO called the CDP, so Carbon Disclosure Project, which says you have to first and foremost set a path to net zero, but how do I know by how many percent do I need to reduce my emissions per year? Well, it depends on your vertical, it depends on your industry. If I'm an oil and gas company, I have to have very aggressive targets. Maybe I need to reduce by 10, 15% a year. If I'm a food and beverage company, we'll still need to eat and drink in 2050. So maybe I'm okay with 4% reduction a year. And so you, uh, it's a target that is based in science. It tells you how your industry can essentially align yourself with the Paris Agreement trajectory. Super clear. And maybe just replaying this to make sure I understood with the, the example we're using, right? The wood table producer I can be carbon neutral today as a wood table carbon producer by buying offsets. So I will buy offsets for a few dollars a ton of CO2 by, you know, reforesting or deploying cook stoves in some developing countries, for instance. And that can be done today by just spending a bit of money. The other version that you're saying is that the net zero and net zero according to science-based targets specifically, where, you know, I don't know specifically for a wood table, but let's say it's a 90% emission reduction objective by 2050. So let's say I produce 100 ton of carbon. So I'm still allowed to produce carbon in 2050, but only 10 tons now. So now I need to think of every single thing that I need to change in my operations and value chain. So maybe I'll have to source my wood differently and more responsibly manage forests. I'll have to switch my transportation model. I'll have to switch my gas-powered machines in my, my facility. So it's a much more systemic change that I have to do versus, you know, just buying your way out essentially through offsets. Yeah, exactly. I think you, you've summed up things very well. So if I'm just buying an offset, I'm not changing anything to my practice. And if everybody does that, I mean, we're doomed. So the only way to escape from a four or six degree Celsius world, which is one of uh, with many catastrophes, is to have everybody think about reducing their emissions. And that means like exactly how you said it, taking a real look at your operations and figuring out whenever there's fossil fuel involved, if there's a way to change that for something that emits less. And that's a much more uh, structural change. 
It's also a more costly change, right? If you have to switch uh, gasoline-powered machines and replace them you know, with electrical power machines, you also want the grid to be uh, greener and tapping into renewable sources or nuclear energy, things like this. That's why it can't be done overnight. You can't reduce your emissions by 90%. You have to electrify a lot of things. And you want this electricity to be much greener. And here you're kind of dependent on the ecosystem in which you're evolving. So you need the IRA in the US to create massive incentives for utilities to shift to low carbon energy. But before, I mean, essentially you want to reduce your use of fossil fuels. You can do this by or reduce your consumption of electricity but you want your energy source to be less carbon intensive. And so it's like a, a waterfall chart of things that you can do, kind of. So we love to talk about scaling up climate solutions here. You've raised a bit more than $20 million last year. And on your website, it says you have a, a thousand customers, which is already huge in, in three, four years. But there are obviously thousands and thousands more companies in Europe and in the US you have a software product, so by, by definition, the product itself scales. What is the, the challenge today to really scale up adoption? Is it demand that is not there from all companies or all geographies, or is there other obstacles to, to scaling up uh, carbon accounting uh, in the corporate world? Great question. Of course, we're excited to have a thousand customers and actually we we hit a big gong last week where we converted our, our 1,000th customer. So it's very exciting. But if we really want to move the needle, we have to think, uh, you know, QuickBooks uh, style. How do we get millions of people on it? So for us, we really just have done the very first step of the journey. And we have to thank those first customers for like helping us make a much better product and the journey is not over. But so... How do you go from 1,000 to maybe first 10,000 and then from 10,000 to 100 and then a million? Well, of course, the product needs to be uh, super intuitive, super self-serve, uh, especially for the small businesses and very uh, like uh, cost-effective. So that's just iteration. And also you want demand from very small companies. So obviously that's going to come as... Uh, supply chains and regulations ask for more. And I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that if we do achieve those cost levels, it becomes much easier for everybody to ask for this info. So we're, we're not just creating tech, we're really displacing the social norm here. You know, it becomes a requirement because you can no longer object that it, it's too hard to do when you've proven with more than a thousand customers that it's actually pretty easy. So I think we have to displace the social norm. And then, of course, beyond this, beyond like self-serve massive adoption, you still have the mid-market and even the larger companies. There are great many of them as well. So here we're thinking, okay, we've supported these companies with our own guys for a while, but there are still a lot of consultants out there who are helping these companies. And, and I think in the last 20 years, it was like all about the digital transformation. And we're going to teach you how to use Google Analytics and, and stuff like that for your business. Fantastic. Well, I think the next 30 years are going to be all about the energy transition. And so you'll still have consultants to help pivot businesses, except now they'll need software. 
So I think for every uh, one employee that we have at Greenly, we, we should say, okay, let's have 1,000 users that are actually not just using it for themselves, but for their own customers. So we've launched you know, a consulting partnership program. We've begun licensing our software to like ESG consultants, a lot of small consulting firms. We have a few big ones that are starting to look at it as well. And so we're training these third-party consultants as if they were our own climate experts to help customers. And we're also getting to a point where, you know, with all of these customers, you realize that it's not a completely a one-size-fits-all. So there are some steps that every customer is essentially interested in doing, but also he's really interested in having a very vertical-specific analysis of his business. So, you know, if I'm a table manufacturer, I don't want a fully generic carbon accounting. I actually want to have this LCA, this life cycle analysis of my table. But the table is easy. Some other guy wants something completely different, right? So how do you scale that when you essentially have to model the complexity of the world, where I think you have to think of yourself as a platform where you can have a lot of apps. and so. We are doing a lot of carbon calculators for specific uh, businesses, and we're doing it ourselves, but we're also doing it with uh, uh, third-party consultants. So I'm maybe a finance expert, and you know I've developed this really cool thing for finance emissions in the table category. Well, great. We have built a developer portal for you to put this app on Greenly, and then we tie you with all the emission factors, and we help you consolidate that. And one of the good things is that we, our developer structure has allowed us to launch these apps very quickly. So long story short, totally scalable product for SMBs. And for the mid-market with all its complexity and vertical specifics is you have to have like a common trunk that is one size fits all, but you also have to accommodate for their need for specifics. And so for this, you build apps, but you know we don't have to build all these apps. We can let the customer build his own app, or we can let uh, a third-party consultant who is a partner of ours build an app. And I think that's how we scale. And of course, there's still a lot of work to make it fully happen. <laughs> I'm sure there's still. And so Greenly is really becoming then the platform to address all the depth of this market, of the, the mid-market complexity you're, you're talking about. How deeply penetrated is the market today? So 1,000 customers, help me understand or put that in perspective compared to you know the full addressable market that, that you can have eventually. And that might be different across Europe, which I believe is a bit more mature in this topic than the US. Yeah, I mean, depends uh, what the timeline is, but I think every company that has financial accounting will end up having carbon accounting. But will this happen in the next five years or in the next 15? I'm not completely sure. I think it'll happen much faster than, you know, the uptake in uh, software for financial accounting because we cannot afford to wait too long. And because now we are in, in a place where software is much more mature and agile and you can launch a ton of stuff uh, much more quickly. So I think we're literally talking about millions and millions of companies. So I think anyone in this business has the potential to become big, uh, like SAP is big or Intuit or Xero, all these accounting firms, uh, some of which, by the way, uh, are partners. 
and you know we integrate them and they integrate us so we're clearly connected to this uh, ecosystem we're connected to a bigger ecosystem to all the other stuff that we connect to right the the cloud the electricity the shopify and so on but in terms of business i'm not entirely sure but i think if you say well you know the i think the good comparison is the financial software industry and so if you add the financial software plus the you know the chartered accountants plus the auditors plus you know all these guys responsible for essentially certifying your books i believe it's about 2% of global gdp that is put into just having proper carbon accounting now it's not crazy to say that carbon accounting will will uh, represent the same sort of thing Okay, so absolutely a huge industry. And that space is, so it's really emerging today. And as you say, there are a lot of different players emerging. So I'd love to have your view on this. There are some technology players like uh, Microsoft and ACP actually launching their, their own tools. There are specialized players, obviously like Greenly, but you know, just to name a few, Persephone, Sweep, Watershed and others. How are you seeing this space evolving and maybe, you know, the, the financial accounting is the right parallel? Do you think there is space for five, 10, 15 leading tools, or there will be some form of consolidation as the market matures? It's hard to say because, you know, everybody thinks he'll live forever. So I don't think it's a winner takes all scenario because there's so much like regulatory specifics in each country and so on. But I do think that there's clearly going to be um, only a few winners. And one of the reasons for that is the more data you have, the more accurate you are. We started the whole discussion around how do you go from top down, from like something very high level to something super granular where you have the, the actual emissions of your, your very small products and so on. Well, whoever builds a platform faster We'll have a lot more granularity in the data. So we, we have a thousand customers, but so all our customers have, you know, analyzed their whole financials. They connected a lot of stuff with SKUs, a lot of stuff with electricity. And so we have super granular data on at least 1000 companies, but many of them also have engaged suppliers. So we've gotten data from like 25,000 suppliers and then We've aggregated data from all available public sources. So, so in the end, we have a super granular base of uh, emission factors, which every one of our customers enjoy when they join us. So I'm a new customer of Greenly in the automobile spare part business. Oh, well, guess what? You've already worked with two businesses in that area and they've used you to rank all their suppliers. So guess what? All these suppliers are ranked for every other business in that category. And so I do think these uh, platform effects bring immediate value to new customers. And so there's probably a tendency from customers to go towards the platforms that have the most data and the most experience. And in that sense, uh, it is a race for size. Got it. So it's not necessarily winner take all, but that, that data and the expertise that you're building on a different industry definitely means that there, there should be a few leading players only. So, you know, you've scaled this company already very quickly, uh, and it's a very impressive trajectory. If you could do one thing differently, you know, across those three, four years at Greenly, what would you do differently? Well, 
So we're still very early on in our journey, and I don't think we're too late to reverse course and stuff like that. I think we've been very lucky to you know, do our pivot just at the right moment and probably in the right place as well, because uh, there's a lot of interest from our initial market, which was France. Now we half of our stuff now is the US and UK, by the way. But so I think one thing we, we might have done very well at first was focus on the accuracy of the platform, but probably not early on enough on things like customer satisfaction. You know, if you want to build a great product, you, you have to build a product that people love. I mean, you're, you're in uh, San Francisco, uh, people repeat this all day long. But when you come with your carbon accounting hat, you, you're still like, okay, I'm the expert and, you know, let's get the right data. And I think what matters a lot to customers is how much you take care of them. And you have to meet customers where they're at. So I think just building a super strong support, which is something we're, we're beginning to be good at, was probably something we needed to, to do earlier. So and I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, it's probably something, you know, I, I mean, we started, of course, you know, six months, a year ago, building something very good. But uh, it's something you have to start from the very beginning, I believe. It's funny, this is a, a typical engineer mindset, right, around optimizing the technology and then uh, not focusing necessarily as much on the, the customer relationship and so on. Exactly. I mean, we are products of our talent pool and these guys will, you know, be more focused sometimes on the accuracy of the data. And that's great. It's their professional ethics and, you know, congrats for that. But they will get into a level of detail that can very easily miss what the customer is really looking for. And he won't even notice that you're so good at computing his stuff if you haven't fixed those other problems that he has to just make the thing understandable to his colleagues and, and things like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. In your journey into carbon accounting and management, is there a useful resource you could share for listeners that want to go a bit deeper on this topic? I mean, there are, there are lots of good books. I think I must have read a few. I would say there's a very good history of energy by Vaclav Smil, which is a great resource. I think the, the Bill Gates book on climate is pretty good. The John Doerr one as well on OKR for climate. There's the Drawdown Project by Paul Hawken. It's pretty good about all the initiatives to reduce your emissions. I would say... There's a good book by a, a French climate expert called Jean Covici, which is called A World Without End. It's like a comic book version, and it's available in, in a lot of languages, in English, of course. And it's like about our, you know, he has some very good images to think about the energy transition. It's this idea that in terms of energy expenditure for, you know, a person in the modern world, it's as if you owned, so all the machines that you own in terms of how much electricity they consume, it's as if you owned about 100 slaves if you were living in the Roman times. So, and this idea that we've become addicted to our energy consumption in the modern world, it's a very interesting way to look at things. And he uses this metaphor of uh, Iron Man, which of course everybody knows, as if like Iron Man is addicted on oil. And because he, he spends so much energy. And so is really our future to spend more and more energy. And, and we've actually kind of, I think, mistaken progress for energy consumption. And it's this appeal which you, 
agree or don't agree with, like we have to reduce, he's not just saying we have to reduce our fossil fuel consumption. He's saying we have to reduce our energy consumption in general, which, you know, is not something everybody wants to hear. Yeah. And I, I think that's a huge debate we could go into, but I, I highly recommend this, this comic from uh, Jean Covici. And it's interesting also to see this, this order of magnitudes in terms of energy consumption. When you take a plane or, or a massive tractor, uh, we sometimes don't realize how massive the energy consumption of those machines are. Alexei, it's been a real pleasure discussing together. I learned a, a lot about measurement of carbon, about corporate climate commitment at zero. It's also been really good to hear the momentum that there is on carbon accounting and, and taking climate action from big companies and, and this trickling down you know, in the smaller and medium businesses. So thank you so much for sharing your time and those incredible experience. And I wish you a, a lot of success with Greenly moving forward. Thank you, Florian, for having this great uh, long conversation. I hope uh, we were able to explain and clear out a lot of things for the audience. And, and I'm obviously very happy to chat again or even with people in the audience if they want to reach out to, to me. I'm easily available through our website. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alex. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.